All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God. But how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey, and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but perhaps one of its greatest allies. We think that the Christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers. And we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions, renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson. And with me today is my good friend, Marty Frederick, rocking a blue sweatshirt. Marty, how are you? (laughs) My blue sweatshirt says, man of your word. Oh, nice. It's a a song by Maverick City Music. So I love this sweater. You know, Marty, when I saw your blue sweatshirt, it transported me back in time to when you and I were in that boat parade. And you and we had to dress up as Sesame Street characters. Yes. And you did Cookie Monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the, the the cardboard that I made a cookie out of, I, my wife later on told me that our puppy at the time had um, used that as a bathroom. And I did not know. It was dry <laughs> when I made the cookie, the cookie. I never actually touched it to my mouth, but I was like holding it the whole time. It's, <laughs> it's there like you go. Super grossed out about that. Yeah. <laughs> that is pretty gross. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, dude, Marty, before we uh, jump in today, I just want to say something real quick. Just, you know, something recently happened that's pretty close to my heart. And so um, I just kind of wanted to put it out there. Yesterday, a good friend of mine, uh, brother Mike Matthews, passed away. Oh, man. And um, Mike uh, Mike was uh, one of the leaders in the high school and young adult ministry uh, with me. And Mike's a young dude. Um, A little over a month ago, they found a super aggressive form of brain cancer that was inoperable and non-responsive to treatment. And so it's just crazy. I mean, like that um, almost overnight. And so I thought, uh, even though this episode isn't particularly related to Mike in any way, uh, I just thought it'd be a a nice gesture if we could dedicate this episode to the memory of Mike Matthews today. So yeah. This one's for you, brother Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I never got to meet him, of course, but um, seems like a great guy, and it's a it's a reminder that life is short. Yeah, so. yeah. What Mike's awesome, man. What what I would say about Mike is I'm I'm jealous, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense. Um, Mike truly had what I think Jesus was talking about when you said a childlike faith. Yeah. And when Jesus talked about that, Mike knew God on a level that was deeper than just some ideological claims, if yeah. that makes sense, if that resonates totally. with you. And totally. uh, the light of Christ shined through that dude like no other. So, mm-hmm. And on top of that, this is kind of uh, funny. Um, we used to, <laughs> I 
So my father-in-law's name is Kevin and Mike and Kevin were extremely similar. They were like the same kind of hat. They dressed the same, same like build and body type mannerisms. The only difference was Mike was black. And so we, we would call Mike uh, black Kevin <laughs> and Mike nice. always liked that. It was a term of endearment. So nice. Um, nice. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. So today's episode dedicated to Mike Matthews, hmm. to uh, Jenna and Nolan, um, his two kids, and to Diane, his wife. So, hmm. see yeah. on the other side, Mike. Absolutely. Whew. All right, man. Well, uh, on that note, <laughs> this is not the best way to introduce a guest, uh, but I'm excited. Returning to the Rethinking Faith podcast is our guest today, Shane Claiborne. Shane, how are you? I'm doing good, man. It's great to be with you. And uh, sorry to hear about the loss of your friend, Mike. And, um, you know, I think the stuff that we're talking about in the middle of a pandemic and the middle of a a world where there's so much loss of life, uh, what we're talking about today is all the more important, you know? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Well, uh, Shane, in the, uh, in the, I don't know, what's it been like a year, I think, or so since we spoke last episode? Too long. Yeah. Too long. <laughs> episode 44, Marty. That's when we okay. last talked to Shane and we're on, we're on what, like 115 last week. So yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're so it's been probably over a year then. So in, in that, in that span of time, Shane, what, what kind of things have you been up to? Oh man. Well, I, I have uh, been, it's been a unique year for us, not just because of the pandemic, but after 20 years in Philadelphia, uh, you know, as a part of the community I've been uh, building for, for a couple of decades, uh, we, Katie and I just decided we, we want to spend some time with our family, you know, more than just a few days at a holiday. So we, we've got this solar powered mobile tiny house that's made out of an old school bus. <laughs> Nice. That's a, that's a thing apparently, you know, is taking these school buses and transforming them into a little schooly uh, tiny house. So we're, we're living on that thing, composting toilet and all. And uh, it's, it's been great to just chill with our family down in North Carolina where I am today and in Tennessee where we're going in two days to uh, be with my family. That's awesome. And Man, we, I, you know, I, we got our, we got our blacksmith and stuff with us. So last time I was with y'all, we were talking about the, uh, beating guns, you know, beating, literally beating, beating donated guns into garden tools. So we've got all of our forge and anvil and all the equipment here. We got a pile of guns and I just finished making, I think 20 shovels uh, out of those. So we're, we're still doing all that work. And um, I'm writing a book right now on, it's very related to what we're talking about today. It's on a a better ethic of life, you know, thinking of what it means to be pro-life, not just in terms of one issue, but to really see every person made in the image of God. Yeah. Well, man, I have, I have a high school, like a a girl I knew from high school that her and her husband, they, they took a full size bus and turned it into a, like a tiny home. And they literally just travel the world, like travel the country in that bus. So, um, well, Shane, last, the last time you were on, we asked you the hockey question. Uh, our second time guest question that we ask um, is who is your fave live, your, I'm sorry, your favorite live music act that you've ever seen? Oh, man. Yikes. You needed to give me the heads up on this. Uh, all right. I'm going to give you my, th- these are both true. Okay. These are both true, but I'm going to give you like my, um, my, uh, answer as as a faith concert and then i'm gonna give you my total uh like appreciation of the large genre of music is that okay is that loud so uh, the first one yeah. is 
it doesn't get much better for me than Rich Mullins. I used to, I, I love Rich Mullins. I know a lot of folks are not real familiar with him because he died in a car crash before there was, you know, a lot of presence on the internet, but I mean, just an amazing songwriter, really great dude. So I got a chance to know him well. And he had a concert that he always got in trouble for what he said in between the songs. Cause he would really be very honest. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, his shows were just beautiful. Um, and then my other answer is I, I was, you know, in the punk rock scene just a little bit in my college days. And uh, so um, I went to a Rage Against the Machine show uh, with with Bad Religion and the Beastie Boys, I think it was. And uh, I'm going to just have to say that was uh, we, we we OK, I got to tell you, we, we had a donated church van that had a big cross on it. And so we went and we we didn't have tickets. I mean, we were living off nothing you know we were starting our community and so there were like eight of us and we drove up to the show and it was you know it was in one of the big uh arenas and so we're here to volunteer for the rage against the machine show we'll help out in any way we can and we got in so nice. uh, you know so that, that was my uh my two rich mullins and rage against the machine that pretty much captures my uh my my genres of music growing up that's awesome <laughs> right i know that rage was supposed to go on tour again like a reunion tour um, and it was supposed to be last summer, like just this past summer. Um, but they had to, I don't know if they just postponed it or whatever, but tickets were $350 a piece. <laughs> so like my friends were joking about like, I mean, I, I love Rage Against Machines. They all, they, they all love them too. But like, you know, like how, how Zach De La Rocha talks about them, like the man, but like the tickets are so expensive. <laughs> so like, uh, yeah. You know, I'm going to get in trouble here because this, this is where this is that, that, you know, uh, just talking off the cuff stuff that's going to, but, but I, you know, I, I, they were going to play the Coachella thing and then they were going to do a series of concerts along the border wall, I think, or something, but then the pandemic, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, if there was a time for some rage against the machine, it, it's, it's like, just, just put up a flatbed outside Mitch McConnell's house or something, you yeah. know, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> I was all excited to go, but yeah, it's too bad. But that man, that show, Rage Against the Machine, Bad Religion, and who was the other act you said? Uh, there, there was a whole bunch, but I think it was um, the Beastie Boys as well. Oh, man. Beastie like, Boys, that's that awesome. Been, that been a <laughs> Brass wild monkey. show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, sweet. Well, Shane, one one more thing before we we jump into our our topic today around the death penalty. Um, Last time you were on the show, it's called Theology Doesn't Suck. We kind of did a rebrand, a rebrand. Sorry, I can't speak today. And now we're called Rethinking Faith. And so we like to ask the question, what is perhaps the most important aspect of your faith that you personally had to rethink? Wow. This is great. Uh, there's a lot of things, you know, in fact, sometimes I I wonder how I would interact with my 20 year old self, uh, you know, the, because on many of these social issues, I was very different in how I thought, <laughs> thought about them. Um, but I mean, I, I think at the very core of it is if I were going to try to sum it up, what I've rethought is what it means to have at the center of our faith, a victim of violence, who transcended that violence by absorbing it and subverting it with, with love and forgiveness. So I think that, you know, it unravels, you know, it starts to, to cue us up to talk about the death penalty, but it's also like why Jesus died, you know, like there are some versions of 
our theology that are kind of like God had a gun pointed at humanity and took it off of us and pointed, pointed it at Jesus and killed Jesus. And so I think there's kind of a version of theology that's, uh, that, that's really got a lot of holes in it and, and can become quite dangerous. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that, that does kind of <laughs> start to unravel everything. Um, yeah, I remember when, when I started uh, first getting connected to some of the more like uh, peace teaching movements like the Anabaptists um, in college, that kind of started jacking everything up for me <laughs> in a good way. Uh, but yeah, so today we're going to talk about the death penalty. And back in, I believe it was 2016, you released a book called Executing Grace. I have it right here. How the death penalty killed Jesus and why it's killing us. And in the first chapter of that book, you stated that you had an agenda and this is what your agenda was, quote, I want to build a movement of grace driven abolitionists, people of faith and conscience who want to put an end to death forever. I want us to make the death penalty history. So that was your agenda back in 2016. And I just want to know how has that been going thus far? Well, I'm, I'm encouraged y'all. I, I think that, uh, like, like we, we talked about a little bit before when I was on your show and when, when I've in some of my writing, I uh, thinking be bigger than just being anti-abortion. When we think about what it means to be pro-life, that it's not just to be pro-birth. It's not just to take a stand on one issue, but, um, to have a, a, ethic of life that is from womb to tomb from the, you know, the, the beginning of life to the end. And so I, I think that that fuels everything that I'm doing. And, uh, and, and that's why I wrote a book on the death penalty and on guns is that I saw on these two issues of life and death, Christians have not always been the champions. In fact, many of the, much of the time we've been the obstacles. Uh, and, and so, um, but I'm excited because I think this is changing radically and we'll talk about that. You know, I think young people have grown up with a, a much more robust ethic of life. It's why young folks are overwhelmingly against the death penalty, uh, concerned about gun violence, caring for the, the earth and the environment, leading movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so there's a new kind of um, ethic and value for the life and dignity of every person. And uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a great time to have this conversation. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, you know, I think this is a unique time in history where um, we're starting to see that the, like the voice of the people is being heard louder than in the past, whereas like it was, it was much more difficult. Um, and I think it's easier now in our, in our growing society and the way that we do things to, um, to make our voices heard by the people that need to hear it. Um, but I, but I think I wanted, I wanted to take us back um, historically just to hear your thoughts, Shane, the death penalty, I feel like it's been a really heated debate in Christian circles, which I think We'll probably get a little bit more to that a little bit later, um, but can you take us back to the early Christians and what they have to say about the issue of the death penalty? Oh, yeah, and this is one of the things that you see, that beautiful, robust ethic of life, right? The, the early Christians for the first 300 or so years were, uh, un, uh, were, were just unmistakably 
standing in opposition to violence and death. They were the champions of life. And they spoke um, on so many different fronts. There's a great book uh, called The Early Christians in Their Own Words. Um, And uh, it captures some of that. Uh, My friend Ron Sider also wrote a book called The Early Church on Killing that has uh, all the, the, by different topics, you know, what the early Christians said about war and militarism, how they spoke out against the death penalty, uh, how they, they spoke out against the gladiatorial games, right? Which were, were kind of one manifestation of our sort of infatuation with violence in their culture. So they, they you know, and they did speak about abortion. They, they had this really powerful ethic of life. And if I were just going to quote one, I would quote uh, Cyprian, which was w- one of the bishops. And he said, when an individual kills another individual, we call it evil. But why do we call it good when the state kills people in mass? Somehow we, we kind of um, baptize state killing, whether that's war or uh, the death penalty uh, or, you know, whatever manifestation it has. So I think that that is a really powerful line, you know, um, and, and uh, so they're a great witness for us to, to, when, when it comes to this kind of pro, consistent pro-life ethic. They're a great example. It's similar to the concept of when, you're, when one of your children hits the other child and then the punishment is a spank. Uh, eventually that punishment starts like even the child starts to be like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> like you're teaching me not to hit by hitting. And that just doesn't, that doesn't comprehend. That doesn't just it doesn't compute for me, um, and I, so I think it's like it, it. It doesn't speak to the fact. Oh well, now you're old enough to understand the concept. It speaks to the to the idea of well, maybe maybe we shouldn't spank our children at all. <laughs> maybe that should be what we not do, so that we don't give them the like. It doesn't plant the seed of violence in their mind even at all. So, yeah, I, I think there's so many ways that that sort of our default mechanisms are violence in our culture. We, we kind of see it, you know, I mean, from music and video games to movies and, um, and, and even, I mean, even we, we've got a chapter of one of our books just talking about our language, you know, how um, that, the, the, you know, we're, we, we have it, you know, we're in, even embedded in our language, things like uh, uh, give it a shot, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so I, I think that, that we, we've got to really rethink the ways that, that our culture shapes our imagination rather than Jesus, right? I think for those of us that are following Christ, that should be shaping how we think about living in a violent world and how we follow the Prince of Peace, you know, uh, and, and counter uh, violence with nonviolence in creative ways. Yeah, and, and I think, Shane, something that um, Marty and I both have uh are becoming more and more convinced of, I'm pretty sold on the idea. I can't speak for Marty. So Marty, if I'm putting words in your mouth, I apologize. Um, But something that I'm totally sold out on is that perhaps the most important aspect of our spiritual development is our image of God. Um, Tozer said something along those lines. Um, I've kind of picked it up from some of the Christian mystics that I like to to read and encounter. Um, But I feel like that's super true. And when it comes to this conversation specifically, how do you think that our image of God impacts uh, our view and perspective on things like justice and the death penalty? 
Yeah, so I think that, that this is really important to dive into because there, there are ways of interpreting Jesus's death that can reinforce a theology of violence, right? I, I have people that email me that say, how could God be against the death penalty when God used the death penalty to save the world, right? So there's kind of this version of theology that says, um, we have a God that needs blood. Um, and I think there's a different uh, way of understanding that, which is not just that God needed blood, but God was willing to die, right? Jesus came, put flesh on God's love, absorbed all the violence of the world onto himself on the cross, even to the point that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? And then even as he's being killed, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So not only was he a victim of violence, but he, he transcended the violence with love and forgiveness, even to the point he died. And then, of course, um, as we remember, you know, especially during the season of Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. So he, he but that, that, this whole story um, is about a God who is with the suffering, a God who um, is, was was willing to endure the pain that we endure. And that's why, you know, it, this has been a liberating message for people who have suffered deeply. Uh, like some great theologians say, the crucified peoples of the world, the people who have been massacred, who have, uh, like African-Americans in here in the U.S., right, who were being lynched by white folks. Uh, incidentally, white folks that would go to public lynchings and then go to church on Sunday morning, right? So it was this kind of toxic theology was there, but the, the you know, the black church in, in America uh, saw Jesus as the, as the lynchee, right, as one who was hung from a tree, who suffers with us, and so I, I draw on the great work of folks like James Cone, the cross and the lynching tree, as we think about how we, how we imagine Jesus shapes so much of our theology. It also shapes our uh, ideas around these issues and these, you know, political issues. But I, I think the death penalty is much more than a political issue. I think it, it is a deeply spiritual issue uh, because at the heart of it is kind of what's going to heal the wounds of violence uh, in the world, the, the effects of sin. How do we, what, what is God doing to heal that? And I believe that the, the cross shows us the way. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so, I mean, and you just mentioned it recently. We actually recently had a conversation with propaganda about um, about critical race theory. And one of the, the things we talked about was like how these lynchings happened, like you said, on like a Saturday and then they went to church on Sunday. And so many people want to kind of sweep that under the rug. But the problem is we got the pictures <laughs> like we, 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 we we've seen it. These are these aren't things that are distant memories. These are recent memories. And I feel like so America has this long and ugly history of racism and white supremacy. Lynchings were a common and gruesome practice. They're still they were carried out to instill fear in people. I mean, I just think of cross burnings and those kinds of things. I mean, I mean, you can't get more ugly of a metaphor in, in that. But do you see any connections, I guess, between lynchings and the modern day death penalty? Um, but then also, like, what role does race, racial bias play in the death penalty? Absolutely. And first of all, propaganda, you know, as is a dear friend and we, we've actually one of our experiences together was going to visit Riverbend, Tennessee's death row. So we visited a bunch of uh, guys on death row and, and 
prop actually shared a, a few uh, uh songs you know and uh with with everybody and they loved it but it, the, the proximity makes a big difference in all this and we'll get there but i want to say this that what, what you're naming is so important that we cannot talk about the death penalty in america uh without talking about our history of race and racial terror um in, in the u.s and by that to be really specific um the states that held on to slavery the longest are the same states that continue to hold on to the death penalty. Where executions were happening 100 years ago is where, uh, where lynchings were happening 100 years ago is exactly where executions continue to happen uh, today. Um, so, and, and what's also important is this is the Bible Belt too, where Christians are most concentrated. This theology, this violent theology is often tied up with our faith and our history around race, right? So the Bible Belt is also the death belt uh, in America. Um, uh, so, so all that, you know, it becomes really important to start to uh, deconstruct some of that. Um, and just to give you one more glimpse of this, that uh if you rewind, you know, a, a little over a hundred years, around a hundred years ago, African-Americans were about 10, 15% of the, the population in the U.S., but they accounted for 75% of the executions when we began to legalize execution statewide in our country. And now you go to now, and African-Americans are about 13% of the population, but they're still almost half of death row our African-American folks um, disproportionately, you know, on death row and in the prisons in general. Um, we have states that there were things that weren't even illegal for white folks to do that were death sentences for, for African-Americans. Uh, so it becomes really clear that when we're talking about the death penalty, we're not just talking about the worst of the worst. We're often talking about the poorest of the poor and disproportionately people of color. Uh, that what ends up getting someone executed is not the atrocity of the crime, but it is often arbitrary things like the race of the victim. When it's a white victim and a person of color as a defendant, it's a toxic uh, kind of equation that, that often ends up in the death penalty. So um, that, that, you know, I think all that's really important to unpack just as we see an evolution from slavery to mass incarceration, we see an evolution from lynching to the modern day practice of the death penalty. Yeah, that, that caused to mind too, uh, an episode we, we did, I guess a couple months ago now with, uh, Dominique, I always mess up his name, Dominique Dubois, uh, is it Gillard, Gilliard? Yeah, um, yeah, who, great friend, Dominique. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. And you, we, we did a, a bit about, you know, rethinking incarceration <clears throat> and it just, it, the, you know, we can see that the carryover with the prison system, basically like a, you know, justified, I'm using air quotes, listeners, justified slavery. Um, and then again, just like you pointed out that it seems to be a similar line from lynchings to like these quote unquote justified lynchings because now the state is carrying it out rather than, um, you know, a, a mob of angry church people or something like that. So it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's not uncommon to see um, the defendant as an African-American, the only person of color in a courtroom of white attorneys, judges, even folks that still to this day had all white juries that were sentenced to death uh, 
there's court cases that we've even seen in recent years where the defendant, an African-American defendant, was called the N-word by judges, jurors, even by their own lawyers that they were referred to with racial slurs. So um, cases like Dwayne Buck in Texas, literally one of the criteria for execution in Texas when you're sentenced is this bizarre idea of future dangerousness, right? That this person poses a danger in their future. And Dwayne Buck, uh, in his case and many others like it, uh, race was was positioned in court as one of the factors that helps you determine future dangerousness, literally saying black folks are more likely to be violent than white folks. And all of that, that evidence was uh, so-called evidence, you know, I'll use my air quotes too, was, was presented in court. And, um, and, and so, you know, I wrote a piece that was called sentence to die because he was black. Um, and, and there's a lot of cases like that. Those are, those are, you know, a few, really specific ones, but you see it just endemic in everything that we're, we see in the death penalty. It's one of the most poignant places that we can see um, has least evolved from the civil rights movement is our mass incarceration and particularly the death, uh, death row. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm embarrassed. I was trying to, to um, <laughs> find, find the, the name of this individual, um, but I remember reading Executing Grace a couple years ago and um, again, I'm embarrassed because I forget his name and I can't find it. But you tell a story of a young man uh, who literally carried his Bible and had to sit on his Bible when he was executed. Um, can you remind, just refresh my, my, my memory of that, that story and that individual? Yeah. Uh, so his name was George uh, Stinney. Yes, George Stinney, Stinney. Right. Yeah. And he was executed by electric chair. And he was so little um, that I can't remember his, his exact age, but he was um, maybe he, he was like 14 years old or something. Right. And he was accused of uh, killing two white uh, girls and in a horrific crime. Right. Um, and I, I think it's important to name that many of these cases are from horrific crimes that people were wrongfully convicted of. Right. And he was just accused of this with no evidence. And in record time, he was convicted by an all white jury, you know, without uh, much thought at all. Uh, I think they gave him like ice cream. Right. And it just shows you like how wicked this is. Right. And, and and he was executed so small that he couldn't even get in the electric chair. So um, the, the, he sat on his Bible in order to be tall enough to be executed. And uh, so, I mean, it, it just shows that I, I think the, the evil of this system of death that we're talking about. Um, and of course, we've evolved. We don't execute 14-year-olds, but we have still this, that evolution of evil continues like we we uh would like to think that we've evolved beyond the electric chair Fr frankly tennessee still uses it we used it as, as as uh recent as a year ago um but we try to sanitize it right we have lethal injection now but still all of that is tied to this legacy right of of um uh, s such a barbaric thing that we would uh have the audacity to call uh justice you know and and so i think george stenny was was actually um uh, what they could posthumous, you know, like uh, exoneration 70 years after he was killed. 
And this is not that long ago. I mean, 70 years old, you know, some of our grandparents were alive when he was killed. So, the, you know, we, we don't have to look back 200 years to see uh, how horrific this was. But this is recently and we're still healing. We're still trying to find a better future without the death penalty. Yeah. And, and along the lines of George, I mean, I, I just, there's been a, there's been a long history of wrongful convictions in botched executions in our nation. Can you, can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there, there are so many, so many different ways that we've tried to kill people. I mean, even in this country, we um, have, uh, obviously had hangings. We've had uh, people crushed. I mean, you think of the Salem witch trials, right? These were um, cases where they weren't even murder cases, but a lot of the backdrop was this for this was the Old Testament, right? Where uh, you have all these different death-worthy crimes, and one of them was witchcraft. So, I mean, even in our country, bestiality was a capital crime. Um, uh, rape, for African-Americans was a capital crime. So we've kind of um, continued to, 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 to rethink how we do the death penalty, but uh, uh, we, we've gone from ex uh, executing people by electric chair, you know, over a thousand volts of, of electricity put into their body, that people have survived that. There's a, there's a man in Florida that survived uh, uh, his first shock of, ex ex uh, of the electric chair. And this is one of the turning points for um, one of the people I interviewed for executing Grace, um, Ron McAndrew was the executioner. And when um, they continued to electrocute um, this man in Florida, um, he began to smoke and um, his head began to smoke. And, and Ron said, after that, I was haunted. And he said, the men that I had killed began to visit me in my sleep. And he became very unhealthy. You know, he, he was um, trying to treat that uh, uh, trauma and horror. Um, and he ended up going, he, he was done with the electric chair, but he wasn't done with uh, uh, the death penalty. So he went to uh, Texas, got trained in lethal injection and tried to bring it back to Florida as a more sanitized way of... Um, executing people. But then in Ron's words, he said, there's just no good way to kill someone. In that, in that incredible line, there's just no good way to kill someone. And he's still a guy that's, you know, he was a prison warden for decades. He's still a guy that if you did the crime, you should do the time. Like he's not a softy, but he says the death penalty is altogether something different. It does something to us. Uh, as a society. And it's why we have an entire team, that the, the death team that carries out executions is no one wants to bear the full burden of that, you know? So you've got a, a, a judge that signs a death warrant. You've got a jury that, you know, uh, is, is carrying the, the sentencing and the, you've got um, a, a, a governor that signs off on it, a parole board that's all owning it. And so you've got all of these layers that insulate us from the ultimate sense that we are taking someone's life. And so there's just no good way to do that. And there's other, there's other examples, even, even with lethal injection, the entire lethal injection industry is a covert illegal drug operation. Like no one knows where these things are coming from. There's no real regulation. The, the department uh, 
uh, of drugs has, has actually raided states that have gotten their execution drugs illegally. Like it's, it's horrific. Right. And so we, we actually just lost during the pandemic, um, a brother in Ohio who survived his own lethal injection execution, uh, Romel Broom, I believe was his full name. And he, um, they, they, they he, there's a picture of him with the, the marks from all of the needle insertions in his body. They couldn't find a vein and they poked him so many times. He said, just let me put the needle in. And, you know, by protocol, they couldn't do that. He, ultimately, he ended up surviving his own lethal injection execution. And the courts ruled that he couldn't be executed, go for execution. Yeah, it's just insane, right? It was a violation of the cruel and unusual punishment or something, all that, right? But he, um, he ended up uh, getting COVID and he, he died uh, just recently. But I mean, th these are all, you know, contemporary cases of uh, even my friend um, Randy, um, his brother, was killed by firing squad um and this is only in utah and he holds up a picture of his brother after the execution and what we what the state did to you know shoot his brother and just blow his whole chest out and uh and that's why you know even to this day firing squads have what they call a bullet of conscience a blank bullet so that someone might walk away one of those guys on the firing squad and say maybe I got the blank bullet, you know, maybe I didn't actually kill that person. But I think, you know, all of this just expresses, I think, how, how really evil it is. And deep down, I think most of us in our gut know that there's something wrong with killing to try to show that killing is wrong. Yeah. And, and Josh, as, as Josh and I were preparing to talk with you today, one of the things that stood out to us um, about these things is, you know, how there's like, a, like there's a viewing room where, uh, people can come and they can watch. I mean, and it's not like anybody can get like it's not tickets to a show or something like that. But um, like how how this this is happening. But then it's like we we want people to come and see it. And it's like the just the um, the just the bizarre act of somebody saying that they would want to watch that. And 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 I realize that there's potential. And maybe you can confirm this for me or, or whatever, but there's potential that Hollywood has turned that into something else that, you know, like the, the, the guy's family or the woman's family could come and sit there and like anyone can, I mean, I don't know what that actually looks like in real life, but the fact that that even exists or happens um, just, it, it really strikes me as sort of like you're saying this dichotomy of like, we're going to do it by firing squad, but we're going to give one, one guy, you know, perhaps the opportunity to think that maybe it wasn't like he wasn't the one, like maybe he had the blank bullet. Like, why would we want people to like, why would someone want to watch that? I, 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 it just so much of that just circles through my mind is just so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole process of executing someone is, it really is a ritual. It, it's a ritual. Of, it's a liturgy. Like we would say in the church, right? We have liturgies of life, <laughs> But this is a, a state liturgy of death. I mean, you think about the last meal, you know, the shaving of the head or the, you know, the putting someone in the death house for 24 hours uh, before they're executed, all the waiting and the, uh, you know, the, the way that we, we try to carry out these executions. It is horrific. Um, and, you know, we just gathered outside of the executions, the federal executions in Terre Haute. Um, and, Folks, you know, that 
I, I realize a lot of us haven't thought a lot about this issue. And, and so it's important to distinguish that, you know, state by state, we have different, um, some states have abolished, some haven't. And we also have uh, the federal government has uh, still held out the power to execute at a federal level, right? Um, so we went um, uh, almost 20 years, 17 years without a single state execution until last year. And under the Trump presidency, we went, uh, we executed people at a rate we haven't seen since the 1800s. Uh, and, and so they carried out 13 executions. I think it was in less than a year. And, and so we he was out- our pro-life candidate, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the Supreme Court, you know, which is now um, uh, with several appointees under Trump that, that kind of has continued to remove the obstacles and allow uh, executions to go forward. So anyway, we were there, uh, Marty and, and, and Josh, and we unfurled crime scene tape um, in front of the entrance to the executions in front of the witness van, because it's protocol that an execution can't be carried out without witnesses and without media witnesses, especially. And so we blocked that van and we were willing to risk arrest, right? Because we literally said it is a crime scene. I mean, at the end of the day, the cause of death on an exec- on, the, on the death warrant for an execution is homicide. That's the cause of death. Um, that's listed on the death certificate. So these, these media witnesses come out and many of them are there because they want to see what this horrific thing is. Um, and I remember one of those um, in Tennessee, uh, Mr. Hale, who's been a reporter on uh, executions in the state of Tennessee under a governor who claims to be Christian, you know, tweets Bible, Bible verses and still uh, has refused to meet the men on death row who are Christians that have asked him to come pray with them. And as he's carrying out these executions, Mr. Hale went to them and he became so affected, so traumatized by it that he said, I cannot do this anymore. And I want to invite Governor Bill Lee to take my seat in the witness uh, area for the next execution to see what he is doing. And I think that's part of it, right? Is that it's hard to be faced with the reality of what we're doing. Um, That's why some uh, executioners are now abolitionists. Um, uh, We have folks in the movement that have been victims of violence that know that the death penalty does not heal the wounds of that violence. So, you know, I think that, that uh, this is um, what, one of the memories that I have just recently of being in Terre Haute was one of uh, our friends was the pastor. He was a spiritual advisor to uh, one of the men being killed. And he was so shaken. It was his first execution. He's accompanying uh, Corey, the, the young man being killed. And Corey w- uh, offers this last statement um, asking for forgiveness for everybody that he's hurt, you know, and he names the victims of his crime and d- didn't shy away from that. Right. And, um, and then they execute him and Bill is there and it's, he's, he's um, witnessing this. He says to the executioners, as a pastor, I would be negligent if I didn't say to you that you really need to find another job because this job is going to kill your soul. And he was kicked out. And I told him, uh, if, I think if you go to an execution, you, you got to wonder, you know, maybe you should get kicked out, you know, but I, I think that, that it does something, it should do something to us. Uh, 
And I think I'll also, I'll just tell you one other story that for me, it was one of the, the closest uh, times that I've been with someone who was executed. And it was uh, a man that I knew for years. I visited him in Tennessee's death row. Don Johnson was his name. And he was convicted of killing his wife in a really horrific murder. And I believe he did it. Uh, uh, he, I, he, I think he was clear about that. His daughter became the poster child for his execution in the beginning. She said, I want him to fry. And then I got to know her and I got to know Don. And over time, his daughter began to say, I hated him. And the hatred wasn't hurting him, but it was destroying me. And I needed to meet him and forgive him, not so he could sleep at night, but so I could sleep at night. And she had this powerful encounter with her dad after 30 years. Um, and it was beginning to open up the door to some real healing. And she became very outspoken against his execution at that point. But Don was executed. And I was with him just a few days before he was killed. And we were hanging out. And I said, you know, how can I, how can I walk with you right now? And I said, you know, how are you feeling? And he said, honestly, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm leaving all this in the hands of God. And he um, said, I'm praying for the governor. I'm praying for everybody involved. And incidentally, he did end up being executed. But he said, I want the last words of my mouth to be singing praises to God. And he actually fasted from his last meal because he wanted the, I think it's $19 that's allotted to the final meal to be donated to feed the homeless in Nashville. So he fasted from his last meal. And then as he was executed, he asked if he could sing. And they allowed him to sing. And his last words were the song, soon and very soon, I'm going to see the king. There's no more dying there. There's no more crying there. I'm going to see the king. So I, I, I look at Don Johnson and the man that I got to know over the years, um, after 30 years, I can see what Jesus did in his life and in his heart. And I think at the, at the end of the day, one of the core questions of the death penalty um, is, do we believe in redemption? Do we believe that someone who has murdered another person is more than the worst thing that they've done and that grace has a word in all of this. You know, as the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I believe at the heart of the death penalty is a question, do we believe anybody is beyond redemption? Yeah, and that, and that specific question is one um, that really kicked me in the teeth at first. You know, when I was, you know, back years ago, um, starting to first think through these kind of issues. And I just came to this realization that like, Yo, this dude that I say I follow Jesus, he sure thought that that guy, his life mattered and, and is redeemable. Am I going to tell Jesus, the guy that I'm apparently following, that he's wrong? <laughs> like, how could I do that? Um, man, and it, I think, too, one thing that's interesting, um, just from like a from a cultural perspective, um, is that we – so, like – this might seem weird, but I think it fits in here. We have this like super aversion to anything that has to do with human sexuality and reproduction. 
where like things become over-sexualized. We don't talk to kids about that or whatever. And then in the same breath, we'll be like, okay, but do you want to come over and watch, you know, Saving Private Ryan or, you know, Terminator or whatever? We'll be like, don't talk about, you know, you know, bodily features or, you know, what two people do together. But isn't it awesome that we can blow people's heads off? Like, it's so cool. So like, there's even this weird, like bit, at least here in American society where violence is almost glorified and then something that's more natural, like procreation (laughs) is like completely demonized and written off. And it's just like a, a weird aversion. And I feel like it somehow fits um, into this conversation. Um, I don't know. That's, I just kind of throwing that out there. That's for anybody. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that for, for those of us who, seek and aspire to follow Jesus, we're following the Prince of Peace, (laughs) right? The one who said, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. The one who said that we're to love our enemies, right? Uh, The scripture that says that we're not to return evil for evil. And so it should shape who we are, right? That at the center of our faith is, is the Prince of Peace. And yet it doesn't always, you know, I mean, that that's why it's so troubling to me that uh, that that the highest demographic of folks supporting the death penalty are Christians. The biggest gun owning demographic in America are Christians. I mean, so we're we're worshiping Jesus on Sunday and packing heat on Monday. You know, I think this is a problem. So it, because it has everything to do with how we look at the world, and I think that the cross and the gun give us two really different versions of power. One of them says, I'm willing to die, and the other says, I'm willing to kill. Uh, So how can we follow Jesus who said, turn the other cheek, and still say amen to the NRA when they say, stand your ground? I think that these are two very different gospels that were being presented, right? And, 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 you know, um, Jesus so consistently interrupts violence. When Peter pulls a sword, he tells him to put it back, scolds him, heals the man that Jesus wounded, you know, and the early Christians said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. If ever there was a case to be made for using violence to protect the innocent, Peter had that case. And yet Jesus is going to say, no, we can die, but we cannot kill. Like, this is not how the kingdom happens, right? I think of the case of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus interrupts the execution, right? He disarms all of the men that are ready to stone her. And he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. So I'm the, I think you're, you're exactly right, Josh. You know, it, like um, that the, the, to follow Jesus is to be continually suspicious of violence, right? That we are the folks that should be subverting death in every way that we can, even to the point of giving our own lives, but we certainly aren't going to take someone else's. That's just not the way of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just the, the picture that I always come back to is like, we as Christians profess to love and serve a God that was that rather was you know allowed creation to commit the worst possible sin crime whatever period gen uh, uh deicide you know creation killing its creator rather than god you know killing and wiping mm-hmm. out um creation and that that just you know speaks speaks volumes to me and also too just the fact that like 
like like you said the story with peter always like stands out to me and we like to throw that one aside um not only did jesus like rebuke peter but then he like heals the dude and like it's just it's crazy to me i don't understand uh we serve a savior who who laid down his life to save the life lives of everybody else and then we turn around and try to talk about we're pro-life so i'm going to shoot you in the face I, yeah, it I mean, just doesn't compute. Have, you literally have bumper stickers that say, if Jesus had had an AR-15, he would still be alive. And you're like, I think we've missed the whole point of the gospel. <laughs> Big right? time, is, friends. When you, when, because we do end up, um, you know, I think it was George, George Bernard Shaw that said, um, uh, God created us in God's image and we decided to return the favor. <laughs> so we create a God that we want to worship, you know? And the problem with some of the, 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 uh, Jesus with an AR-15 kind of theology is that it recreates Jesus in our image, right? It, it, that we want a savior that looks more like the NRA than the crucified Christ. And that's a problem, right? That's, uh, I think it goes to the very heart of, of our theology. And, you know, the, the last thing I, I think it would be, um, uh, you know, it, 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 you can't say it enough that you, you look at the Bible and it is full of murderers who were redeemed by the grace of God, who were used uh, in spite of the terrible things that they did. Moses killed a man and buried his body in the sand, the book of Exodus, right? David raped Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah to cover up this, you know, uh, uh, and then Paul of Tarsus, Saul, you know, originally as he persecuted Christians, was uh, a terrorist. And all of them were, were um, caught by the love and grace of God. So the Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. And I think that's the question in the end, is if we believe that murderers are beyond redemption, we could you know, rip out half the Bible because it was written by them. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Shane, I just think about the idea as, as we're talking about Jesus. I mean, there's so many examples of Jesus being a peaceful anti-violence person. But I, I think what's always funny to me is you'll find people that will point to him turning over the tables in the temple to prove that Jesus wasn't anti-violence. And, and like they, they, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it, yeah. it's it's like they, they want to like find whatever they can to hold on to their permission to be violent, uh, their, their own permission to um, act on their anger. And I, I find that unfortunately, uh, I don't, I don't, it's, I don't know that there's definite connection here, but I've, I've seen this strange paradox in the life of conservative Christianity. Um, and it's probably been there for a long time. Um, this, this concept of, we, we talked about this with Eugene Cho a few months ago over the summer, uh, the context of, of a Christian being pro-life, but only in the context of abortion, but not in the concept of being pro-life. And so I find this interesting paradox within Christianity of being pro-life and pro-death penalty. And there's not like, it's, it's hard for people to see that they completely contradict each other. And I just was curious on your thoughts of that. I mean, Eugene was very straightforward and, you know, being pro-life means being pro-life. That means pro-life in across the board. If you're pro-life with abortion, you need to be pro-life with children in cages on the southern border. You need to be pro-life with refugees escaping political turmoil to come to a place where there isn't. You need to be pro-life across the board. So I'm just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, so I'm writing a book, you know, on, on that right now. And it's the fire in my bones is, is this, this idea that we want to be for life and that, that I still think abortion matters. Um, uh, abortion, um, I think we need to be asking the question of what can cut down the number of abortions and begin to eradicate abortion. And I think there's not a really, really easy answer to that, but we, uh, things like a- access to health care and resources, the number one cause of abortion uh, is economic, is, is not having the, the capacity to carry out, uh, you know, a, a child. And so how can we come alongside folks in those situations? There's all kinds of conversations around that, right? But I also think that, um, th- that these other issues of gun violence, a hundred lives a day ha- are lost to guns. Uh, we've lost more people in my lifetime to gun violence than in all of the wars in U.S. history combined. I mean, this is an issue of life, right? And we're not going to save every life, but I think we can do a heck of a lot better than 100 lives a day that are lost. I mean, think of all the ways that we uh, protect people from cars. You know, we've, we've put in airbags and, you know, uh, speed limits and, you know, you have to have a license. And if you use it irresponsibly, it gets taken away. So I think there's all kinds of things that we can do on these. And the death penalty is one of those things that has no place in the kingdom of God, the reign of God, God's dream for the world, right? I believe that Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, that he was like water poured on the electric chair to short circuit the whole system and logic of death sacrifice, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think that's where we find ourselves uh, w- with children in cages, immigration, um, uh, Black Lives Matter is a, is, a, is a life movement. Black lives are at stake. So we've got to be able to see uh, uh, every person is made in the image of God and anything that is squashing someone's dignity or life is crushing God's image in the world. And God takes that personally. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I think we, we live in a, in a culture in which um, and it might not just be our culture. It might be the culture of the world, um, but where justice is seen uh, as our doing, like that we are supposed to carry out justice. Uh, Paul was pretty clear about that in Romans, that vengeance is the Lord's um, and that it, it, except we, we simply just, we, we live in this, in this notion that we need to carry out justice. Something is done. And so eye for an eye, I mean, Jesus had something to say about that too. Um, but I, I think it's just interesting to see how those things come together. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for people like you and people that are fighting the cause of realizing that, Hey, like there is more to this than tit for tat uh, there, you know, the redemption is possible. I mean, I could not tell you where I would be today if redemption was not accessible. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think about even my life in the last day, in the last month, in the last year. I mean, if redemption and forgiveness and understanding, not only from my savior, but also from my wife and my kids and my family, I mean, and my friends, if redemption wasn't accessible for me, uh, man, mm. I mean, we would, I mean, I, and I know I'm not alone in that. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for people that are doing the work for that. And, um, just, yeah, thank you for that. Oh, it's great to be with you, man. I'm, I'm, I think we're all singing the same song and doing what we can to try to, uh, uh, build a, a, a 
a world where life is respected, you know, and, and I, yeah. I think of, uh, um, the, the power of grace, you know, and redemption is, is everything that we believe, you know, in the gospel. And I, I remember, you know, sister Helen Prejean, she's been such a wonderful champion on the, on, um, the death penalty and so many other things. She was a subject of, uh, you know, the, the movie dead men walking. And she sometimes says the question in the end sometimes is not whether someone deserves to die, but whether or not we deserve to kill. Mm. And, and, uh, there are people that have done horrific things. I think like Dylan Roof down here in South Carolina who killed nine people in the middle of worship uh, in, in Mother Emanuel AME Church. And yet one of the voices that is standing against his execution is my friend, Reverend Sharon Risher, whose mother was killed worshiping Jesus in church. And she says, D Dylan Roof doesn't need to be executed. He needs to know the grace and love of God. He needs mm. to be locked up right now. He is imminently dangerous, but it is not the best that we can do to execute Dylan Roof. We mm. always hold out hope that even someone like Dylan Roof can be shaped and changed by the love of God. Don't we mm. believe that God is that big? Yeah. Is she the one that was in the courtroom that via video for, like said to him in the in the courtroom that I forgive you for what you have done. Is, is, is she the one that I know that that was a big story from that? There, there's so many different stories of those families. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure of the exact one, but I've I've been with Reverend Risher on so many occasions, and um, she's just one of those consistent voices. And that's why she's not a single issue person. She's in the front lines of gun violence and talking about how Dylan Roof got the guns that he got. You know, to carry out this this mass shooting. But she's also talking about the death penalty. She's talking about the movement for black lives because they were specifically targeted, you know, as black folks in their church. So all of these things are very connected, you know, and you can't that's mm -hmm. why we can't just speak about them in isolation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Shane, just one more thing that I want to ask, just um, because you have uh, so much experience around this this topic, um, you know, interviewing people and being with people. Um, who have been, uh, you know, victims, uh, the families of victims. And a lot of times, one of the, the biggest things that, that um, people, you know, throw at me when we, we discuss the death penalty is like, oh, well, like, don't you care about the, the victims' families? Like, doesn't, you know, carrying out the death penalty, you know, somehow, you know, mend their wounds or something like that. Has that been true in your experience? Like, do families that you've interacted with really just need this death to happen? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think we should always grieve with those who are grieving, right? It's, and it should break our hearts anytime someone suffers from any act of violence, right? That's why I want to say, it, like, um, Violence is the problem, not the solution, right? And the way that we heal the wounds of violence is not with more violence. And that, 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 that's exactly what the death penalty does, right? It extends trauma. It exacerbates the wounds of violence. It creates a new set of victims. And it's murder victims' family members who, to me, have been some of the most credible voices for the abolition of the death penalty. You know, they've shown me that to be against the death penalty is not to be against justice. Mm 
It's not to be against justice for the victims. Um, it's just to say the questions that we're asking are what is really going to heal the wounds. And the death penalty offers all of these false promises um, like closure. You know, you can't bring someone back from the dead. And so uh, murder victims, family members are the folks that have really moved me. Groups like Journey of Hope and uh, Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation. Um, groups like the, the uh, Death Penalty Action that I'm a part of, they all have murder victims, family members in the forefront of the movement. Um, and it's folks like Suzanne Bossler, who's a dear friend of mine. Her dad was killed in a terribly violent crime that she survived. She was stabbed like four times in the head, barely survived the crime. And her dad was a pastor and she walked away going, there was never a moment that I thought the answer to this evil is executing the person who did it. And my dad would never want that as a pastor. His, his sermons were, were dripping with grace and for redemption. And so um, that's what I think we have to, to really realize is that there's one narrative of murder victims, family members that often frames the conversation on the death penalty. We need justice for the victims. And what they mean by that is we need to kill someone. And that there's a whole nother group, group of victims that, and when they speak publicly, they are often gagged. Uh, they, Suzanne in court was even told that she could be charged with contempt of court for being an obstruction to justice because the state was seeking the death penalty. And if she spoke against it, she was getting in the way of justice. I mean, this is the person closest to the, she survived the crime and had her dad killed and she just wants the state not to kill the person that did it. And she was threatened with jail time and a fine. Right. So I think that we've got to challenge that narrative. And you guys, I, I'm encouraged. You know, I think it's those voices that are beginning to really resonate in the hearts of so many folks. Um, 80 percent. Check this stat. 80 percent of millennial Christians are against the death penalty, hmm. not in not in spite of their faith, but because of it. They can't reconcile execution with the gospel of Jesus. Right. That's mm -hmm. good news. Almost every year a new state abolishes the death penalty. We just saw the state of Virginia uh, vote to abolish the death penalty. And this is the first Confederate state, formerly Confederate state that uh, has abolished the death penalty. When you look across our country, executions are dropping to the lowest that they've ever been. That's why the, the, the federal government carrying out executions is going against that trend. You know, finally, a majority of Americans want alternatives to the death penalty when they're polled. So th this is an amazing time to be alive. I think we need courage. We need to speak out. We need to know that this is kind of one of those things that begins to open Pandora's box, that it is about the death penalty, but it's also about a, a certain narrative and theology that continues to legitimate violence and hatred and revenge. Uh, and we need to uh, counter that with the, with the real gospel, the gospel of grace and redemption. Yeah. Well, thank you, Shane, for talking with us today. I guess the last question we'd have for you is, uh, and you kind of spoke to it just a second ago there, um, what can I or Josh or listeners do uh, to be uh, like put boots on the ground, put hands to the plow, whatever it looks like 
um, to work with this and to and to help begin abolishing the death penalty in more states and in other places? How, how can we help? Yeah, awesome, y'all. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's having conversations like this, right? You know, really, and I'm, I'm so uh, grateful for folks that have listened in that this might be a stretch for them. It might be challenging some of their ideas. And um, uh, I, like I said, you know, 25 years ago, I was on the other side of a number of these issues and began to lean into Jesus. And I also became more proximate to the people who have been directly impacted. So I also want to say this, this is not just about issues. I mean, I've got um, letters here on my desk from folks that are um, facing execution. I mean, so the closer we get to the pain, I think the more it begins to change our heart. And so keep leaning in and then, you know, join us at Death Penalty Action. Uh, Death Penalty Action is sort of a big tent that is uh, collaborating with all kinds of different organizations. So we're hosting conversations even this month during Easter. I'm having a a conversation around uh, what does it mean that at the center of our faith is an executed and risen Savior. Uh, We've got this month, Reverend Sharon Risher that I mentioned, her mom was killed and she's against the death penalty. We're having a conversation with her. I'm having a conversation with Suzanne Bossler, the other woman I mentioned, and Derek Jamison, who was wrongfully convicted. So we're having these conversations to try to center the voices who have really been directly impacted by this. And so join us at Death Penalty Action. State by state, there's a lot of things that we can do. So there's coalition groups in almost every state in the U.S. that are working for alternative to the death penalty. So you can see some of that on, um, uh, we've got a website, executinggrace.org, or maybe it's .com. It's one of those. <laughs> and then, um, and you know, deathpenaltyaction.org. And then if you're kind of wondering about just what, what are the facts, which states are against it, which are, uh, uh, you know, for it, what's my state doing? Uh, you can go to Death Penalty Information Center. And that's really the best kind of clearinghouse. If you want to see what executions are scheduled this year and how we can organize around those, um, go to Death Penalty Information Center. But first of all, you know, I, I'm grateful for both of you uh, for, for hosting this conversation. And obviously, for those of you listening in, uh, it, it is about the issue of capital punishment. But there's so many more layers as we tear them away that I think it, it raises some really important theological and practical questions for us. So thanks y'all. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I can't help but to agree with you. The more I lean into Jesus, the more, you know, crazy things get in a good way. Yeah. And I think um, just to kind of tie this, you know, recent event into it, as we wrap up here, uh, there's a, a, you know, famous YouTube show called good mythical morning and they both, you know, used to be like super popular in the Christian world. They like wrote songs for like Veggie Tales, crazy stuff like that. And anyway, they recently had conversations about, you know, deconstructing their faith and da da da. And the guy Rhett said something that I thought was extremely insightful. He was saying that um, today, a lot of young people, millennials and, and younger, um, are walking away from the church not because they're rejecting Jesus, but to follow Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He's yeah. saying, he said that you guys let your kids read the words of Jesus. And then they're walking away from the church because they're finding Jesus is outside on the streets and not inside of those walls. And that's what yeah. people are doing. And I think Rhett is dead on because I know for me personally, this Jesus dude is the reason I'm still hanging around yeah. with these Christian yeah. folks. Cause it, I don't know, man, but 
off all with you. <laughs> Jesus all the way. I think that's a great place to land it today, you know, is, is and for some folks I would say rejecting one version of Christianity might not be the end of your faith, but it actually might be the beginning of a more more robust, more beautiful faith, you know. And, and there's a lot of things that are camouflaging themselves as Christianity that actually don't look like Jesus. They don't sound like Jesus. And at the end of the day, the world is Christ-like. And these, Jesus said, they will know that you're Christians by your love. I think there's difficult scriptures that we can wrestle with, but Jesus is the lens through which we're reading the Bible and understanding the world, you know? So even the eye for an eye, you know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you this. So I think he is fulfilling that, you know? He's So so keep, keep a, like you were saying, Josh, y'all, y'all that are listening in, keep, keep leaning into Jesus, even in spite of the embarrassing and even shameful things that Christians have done in Christ's name. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, listeners, thank you again so much for hanging out with us today. And uh, I guess as always, go Caps. Go Blackhawks. And go Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> Peace Thanks, and love, guys. <laughs>